I, I don't actually get that long because I think that's an hour. So if that runs out and you've left, we understand. Um, so this morning, if I can find my notes, we're going to start Galatians. Very exciting for somebody. <laughs> All right, we good? Um, before we do that, obviously, uh, Liz brought it up. There's a situation in, in Europe with the war in Ukraine. Um, having been invaded by Russia. Um, can't believe everything you see in the news. I understand that. But certainly there are people uh, who have been displaced and who are suffering as a result of what's happening. Um, because we don't have a budget, and specifically we don't have a missions budget, in thinking about what, you know, what can we do as a little church in Springfield to help um, and what my pastoral obligation to all of you to offer you some guidance is. The best I can do right now is to point you to um, the International Baptist Missions Send Network Relief Fund. Um, they have people on the ground in Ukraine um, and, and had before all of this started happening. So I'm gonna, I'll send a link out right now to, this, to the signal group. Um, and this is just, if, you're, if you're looking for a place, you can send 15 or 20 bucks uh, to try to help, then I believe it's a reputable organization. Send Network is helping us right now get established here, and this would just be their Eastern European arm. So you're welcome to look into that and see if it's something you want to do. Um, as a church, there's, we can't. There's nothing we can do right now. We don't have a budget. So <clears throat> Galatians 1. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, also, <clears throat> this chocolate brown, I don't know what kind of wood pulpit that I now have, um, is it maple? Um, Kevin Viles put this together for us to have, and I just want to publicly um, acknowledge my gratitude. And um, you know, it's it's without getting too sentimental or sappy. Here's an interesting thing that that Lisa reminded me of last night as. Kate decided she needed to go on an investigatory mission to find all of the old baby albums and videos from when the kids were born. <clears throat> there was a, um, an invitation to a, a baby shower that would eventually, like that baby would be Kate. We didn't know it at the time. And it was Carrie. Fourteen years ago, uh, who put that baby shower together, and here we are. So thank you, Kevin and Carrie. All right, that's enough of that nonsense. Uh, <laughs> let's pray. Father, we come before you now. We thank you for the time of worship that we've had. Um, we thank you for this people, uh, all of these 
folks from varying walks of life who gather in this place Sunday by Sunday, um, earnestly desiring to hear from you. So would you please put me aside with all of my faults, failures, and frustrating things that I do. And Holy Spirit, be pleased to use um, my voice and my mouth to speak truth to all of us that our hearts might be changed, that we might be encouraged to walk more faithfully in obedience. Father, we love you and we have entrusted ourselves to you. Would you cause us to do so more fully this morning? And Jesus, would you, as we look into this introduction uh, to this book, help us to consider the price that you paid to bring us into relationship with the triune God. We thank you in advance for the work that will happen here, and we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, and I'm just going to read 1 through 5, says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Today I hope to accomplish five things. Um, I've learned by listening to men who have been to seminary, which I haven't, that when you are a preacher or a teacher, um, anytime you start a new book of the Bible is a beautiful opportunity to impress upon your audience what a vast knowledge you have of history, geography, and etymology. Um, Because I've not been to seminary and I've not earned that right, my introductions tend to be more interesting, (laughs) pointed, and brief. So... The five things that I'd like to accomplish today are these. I want us to understand the place of Galatia. I want us to understand the time that this epistle was written. I want us to know who the author was. I want us to know the occasion for the letter. And then finally, I want us to know the context for us to make application immediately. So let me do this. All right, Galatia was located in what is modern-day Turkey. However, it was not all of Turkey, but if you look at the next slide, it's this little S-shaped portion of Turkey um, that was Galatia, just kind of occupying the middle of the country there. And then finally, here's a map of all of the places Paul likely visited um, during his second and third missionary journeys. So that's, that's the where. That's where we are in Turkey, um, but not all of Turkey. Um, so Galatia, oop, did we lose it? Hey, can you cycle back to just the previous one? I'm sorry, sweetie. You're such a dear. Next one. Yep, that one, perfect. You see where it says Asia Minor? And right above that, it says Galatia. So that's where that S would be, from C to C, 
that S runs right through there. Anyway, thanks, Kate. You can, you can shut it down. I appreciate it. Um, my conviction, and I think most of you will, would uh, understand and appreciate this if we had time to go to Acts and make, Acts and make a study of um, this. My conviction is that Galatians was written during his two-year stay in Ephesus, which would put the time at 54 or 55 A.D., in, in kind of the midst of his second missionary journey, um, or third missionary journey, rather. No credible scholar argues against Paul as the author of this book. It's, it's agreed upon. It's settled science. Uh, Paul wrote this. So there's the place, the time, and the author. Those are the first three things we wanted to accomplish. Now let's look at the occasion. 35 miles um, southwest of Packwood, Oregon, at 3,500 feet sea level, above sea level, is a breathtaking mountain lake tucked into the Cascade Range um, that not many people are aware of anymore. Um, it was the site of three recreational camps and a favorite spot of all of the folks that lived in the surrounding little towns um, near Packwood. Um, the lake became so popular because of its views over the decades that people actually settled around its banks. So there were residents that weren't part of the logging industry in the area who just retired there because it was such a gorgeous place to live and, and so scenic. In March of 1980, Reed Blackburn, a 27-year-old photographer for National Geographic, made his way off of a, a night shift covering high school sports to this place called Spring Lake in Oregon. Um, his purpose in being there was to capture some of the scenery as it emerged from the winter snow and spring kind of took hold of the area and get the full effect of that period of blooming and blossoming, blossoming and, the, and the ice melting off. On March 20th at 3.45 p.m., a magnitude 4.1 earthquake struck somewhere beneath the lake, rattling all of the residents who were preparing for the coming tourist season. This was the first sign that there might be something of a problem. Over the next six weeks, a gradually building earthquake swarm developed, coming to a climax at around noon on May 7th. Reed Blackburn, the photographer, aware that these quakes were out of the ordinary, nonetheless continued his mission to document the metamorphosis of Spring Lake from winter into summer. <clears throat> from March 25th until May 7th, dozens of earthquakes per day were registered with increasing intensity. So from March 25th to May 7th. I was born the next day on May 8th of 1980. That's important. <laughs> During these weeks from May 25th to May 7th, there were multiple fissures that opened in the hillside above the lake, ejecting rock from nearby quarries and sending an ash column 7,000 feet into the air. This was the second sign that there was probably a problem. Scientists flocked to the area, working diligently to figure out exactly what was going on, and Reed Blackburn captured some incredible images from a helicopter 
of these fissures and this ash column. Static electricity generated from ash clouds rolling down the mountain towards Spring Lake created lightning bolts over two miles long in the midst of what would have been blue sky days. A state of emergency was declared and the residents of Spring Lake were urged to evacuate the area. On April 30th, an obvious bulge in the side of the hills above Spring Lake grew to the point where it was certain to be a massive mudslide. So Reed Blackburn made the drive around to the southwest side of the lake to capture that mudslide before it happened. On May 7th, that bulge grew to its absolute maximum size, and a total of over 10,000 earthquakes had been registered at that point from March 25th to that date, May 7th. This was the third warning that there was most certainly a problem at Spring Lake. However, on May 8th, the day that I was born, all of the activities stopped where before there had been a, an eerie blue flame burning above the rock face on the hills above Spring Lake, that went out. There were no more fissures ejecting rock and ash. The lightning went away and the earthquakes subsided, due, I'm certain, in no small part <laughs> to my arrival on Earth. Reed Blackburn, along with the just over 50 residents remaining at Spring Lake, relaxed, content that they had made the right decision to stay. Over the next 10 days, things were eerily quiet because there was no logging going on. The majority of the residents in the area had evacuated. So these 57 people had the lake pretty much to themselves and enjoyed a serenity that hadn't been seen there in decades. On May 18th, when I reached 10 days old, at 8.32 a.m., all of that changed. A single magnitude 5.1 earthquake centered directly below the north slope triggered that bulging part of the mountain to slide. And that landslide, which is still the largest ever recorded in human history, traveled 110 to 155 miles per hour and moved across Spring Lake's west arm. Mere seconds after that bulge of rock and mud cascaded across the lake, displacing her waters and creating a tidal wave 600 feet high, the waters crashed against the opposing slope and returned, bringing with them every tree, every home, every structure, and every bit of detritus that those waters had gathered, burying all of Spring Lake and reducing the depth of water to only feet. Then came the explosion. Mount St. Helens erupted with the force of 40 megatons of TNT. And the amazing thing about the Mount St. Helens eruption is that the ejection was not vertical, but it was horizontal. And there was a lateral expulsion of rock at 400 miles per hour across the lands landscape instead of up into the air. Within 10 minutes, 57 people were dead. Reed Blackburn had enough time to get into his car, at which point the superheated cloud of ash, pumice, and gas literally snuffed him out like a candle. These deaths were easily preventable, but all of the warning signs were ignored. 
Like those signs, Galatians is a warning, but of something far more subtle and far more deadly than the eruption of Mount St. Helens. When Paul composed this letter, his interest was most certainly preventing the certain disaster which was bearing down on the church in, uh, across Galatia. That's the occasion. So we've got four things down. We've got one to go. We're okay. All right. So let's look at the context. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we're going to read verse 20 through 30. So 10 verses. Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So here's the setup to this situation. Jesus is in Nazareth, his hometown, and he's just been invited to read the scriptures uh, in the synagogue on Sabbath. And he does so. And he reads a passage from Isaiah which predicts or prophesies the coming Messiah. And here's what he says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, isn't this Joseph's kid? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So they want miracles. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. There were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people of the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went on his way. So Jesus mentions two events to these people. <clears throat> the widow at Zarephath, who was most certainly not a Jew, was the only one to whom Elijah the prophet was sent to care for during the famine. No Jewish widows were shown that kind of affection from God. And then the story of Elisha cleansing Naaman, the captain of the king's guard, of his leprosy. There were many lepers in Israel and in Aram, where Naaman was from and served the king there. But it was only Naaman who was cleansed in the waters of the Jordan. There were no Jews cleansed there. So Jesus points out early on in his ministry, in his hometown, that Jewishness apparently saves nobody. And the result was the people wanted to kill him. You don't have to turn. I'm just going to flow through the next couple of chapters of Luke. In 5, 17 through 26, Jesus heals a paralytic and in the process of healing this paralytic, one of the things that he says is, your sins are forgiven you. And the Pharisees, as a result, accused Jesus, who just healed a paralytic, of blasphemy. 
and insist that nobody can make themselves equal with God by saying to someone else, your sins have been forgiven you. In 27 through 32, Jesus calls Matthew out of his tax collecting booth. And then Matthew, in response, holds a feast to celebrate his new calling out of tax collection into ministry. The Pharisees observe this feast and accuse Jesus of sin for eating with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. In chapter 6 of Luke, 1 through 11, on two different occasions, one is the disciples picking grain as they walk through the fields, and the second is the healing of a man whose hand is mangled. Both of these occasions offer the Pharisees a chance to accuse Jesus of working on the Sabbath and thus being a sinner, not holding to the Jewish customs and traditions. In chapter 7 of Luke, Jesus is invited to dine with a Pharisee and for some reason does so. While he's in this Pharisee's house, reclining at the table, a woman of this city who Luke describes as she was a sinner, comes into the house, stands behind Jesus weeping, anoints him with an alabaster bottle of perfume, cries to the point she's able to dampen his feet and wipe them with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee's response is to be revolted because this is not in keeping with Jewish customs and religious traditions. And on and on and on we could go through the Gospels identifying how the religiously fair and elite viewed the ministry of Jesus Christ among those people who they deemed to be sinners. The point is that Jesus, from the beginning of his ministry, upended religious ceremony in favor of heart relationship. He did not come to institute moralistic deism. Christianity is not on the surface, nor is it beneath a series of moral principles by which you can grow closer to God. That is not what Christianity is. Jesus came to save sinners from sin. So in Galatians, looking just at verses 4 and 5, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Jesus obliterated the strongholds of empty religious ceremony by suffering and dying at the hands of sinners because it was the will of God for him to do so. That means that the one who wrote the commandments and established the ceremonial law and established the principles by which Israel conducted herself from the parting of the Red Sea all the way to the arrival of Jesus Christ, the God who established that path meant for Jesus Christ to be rid of it, meant for him to put that away. So let me remind you of what we learned back in September, because I think this will be helpful to you if you were here. If you weren't, I think you'll pick it up pretty quick. Um, All right, we're good. Um, There are four wells that I believe we tend to visit to solve the discomfort of living in a broken and dying world. 
all sinners feel the anxiety and fear and shame that accompanies being a sinner. And we deal with feeling that in different ways. The first well that I identified is the well of self or self-improvement. The idea is if a better version of me could just come about, then I would be satisfied and be at rest in the midst of this lost and dying and difficult world. Then I could put aside my fear and my shame and my guilt. The problem is you're never going to be fulfilled and content with a better version of you. The second well is the well of others. If I can get the applause and approval of other people, then I will have security. Then I will not be discomforted by living in a lost and dying world. I will finally be fulfilled and content. Doesn't work. The third well that we visit is the well of the world. And this is trinkets and trash. All of the trinkets and trash of earth. Like that's going to satisfy. The accumulation of wealth. The right concoction of drugs or alcohol will somehow put aside the weight of being a sinner in a lost and dying world. And then finally, we visit the well, and these are not in sequential order, these are just the four that I know of, so finally being the last one I'm gonna talk about. Finally, we have the well of religion. Um, and this is, I mean, the easiest way to summarize this would be to say, sinners uh, think to themselves, I, I will establish a moral system by which I can put God into my debt. A system of values that if I uphold and sacrifice my time and energy and memorize theological information and teach other people, then I will be fulfilled and content. And none of these wells work. All those of us who are over the age of about 26 or 27 can testify none of them work. Amen? All right. The reason is because a version of you now is no more impressive than the version of you from five or 10 years ago. It just isn't. You may be more svelte, you may have fewer metabolic issues and you might feel a little better as a result, but I can testify as somebody who's approximately 40 pounds lighter than I was in 2017, it's not better, it's just different. My knees hurt less, but that wasn't my goal. The approval and praise of other people, if we manage to get it, say amen if this is true, the approval and praise of other people weighs on you like a mountain because you weren't created to bear the weight of other people's worship. This is why celebrities absolutely lose their minds and do stuff like name their kids Apple. And we look at it and go... <laughs> What is the matter with you? Well, what's the matter with them is we're not designed to bear the weight of human beings looking at us like we have the answers. The accumulation of treasures simply grows our appetites. Treasure never leads to contentment. No matter how much you accumulate, you will always be in need of more. This is why America has a $30 trillion national debt. And religious fervor only leads us, like the Pharisees, to despise the less committed folks around us while deceiving ourselves into thinking we are something when we are nothing. And Galatians is ultimately a warning against that fourth well. I have said this many times since I arrived here in September and we began this work. 
There is an immeasurable difference between the gospel and all other religions in the world. Religion is the pursuit of moralistic satisfaction. Jesus gave himself that we might be in relationship with God the Father. This book is because Galatians had claimed to believe that gospel at one point. And now we're being led astray by false teachers or perhaps just the propensities of a wandering sinner's heart. So Paul writes them this letter, warning them that they are veering into legalistic, empty religion. In the coming weeks, what I'm going to do is make the case that on either side of the road to eternal life are troubling waters that we can veer into. On the one side, you have the ditch of licentiousness. This is where the Christian convinces him or herself that it doesn't matter what I do or how I live because God will forgive me and runs headlong into things which are damaging and forbidden by God because he is first and foremost for our well-being prohibited those things. On the other side is the ditch of legalism. Legalism basically says that if I can keep a system of morals, I can thereby bring God into subservience to my will. If I do my devotions, God has to give me a good day. And many have veered into the waters of legalism and been consumed and never been recovered. This book, like so many of Paul's epistles, is written directly to deal with the propensity we have to go to that well of religion and try to find comfort for our souls when the only comfort for our souls can be found in real relationship with Jesus Christ. We wind up thinking that God's pleasure or wrath toward us is determined by how carefully we keep a set of ceremonial prescriptions. We need to note the warning signs of that spiritual drift. Or... Like Reed Blackburn, we will perish. Unlike Reed Blackburn, our perishing may be eternal and not just temporal. God is not interested in religious affectations and expressions of fealty. He is interested in being in relationship with you. What I'm hoping that a study of Galatians will accomplish in the end is we will be encouraged to draw to Jesus Christ and then develop in an authentic community of people who actually believe that he came and gave himself so that we could know God the Father. And then we might be equipped to deploy to a culture of lost and dying sinners. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.